looking at Mark, the, the Gospel of Mark, and we're doing a series called The Portrait of Jesus. And I began by saying over the last couple of weeks that each of the Synoptic Gospels are different aspects of Jesus um, shown by different writers. And we're looking specifically at, at um, Mark's uh, Gospel and what he has to say about the person of Jesus. And we're trying to look at two big things that are big themes throughout the book of Mark. The first is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? And secondly, what do you do with this Jesus? And so that, that is the, the kind of big picture that I'd like to continue speaking about as we progress through the book of Mark. And, and you ask yourself those questions. Who is Jesus to you? And what do you do with this Jesus in terms of your life? How does it change and shape? How does Jesus change and shape your life? Uh, today we're going to be looking at this amazing story of the battle of Jesus' temptation where he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. But uh, just to set the context, remember last week we looked at John the Baptizer, we looked at who he was, where he came from, and uh, the importance of John in the introduction of Jesus' ministry. And we discussed why his ministry was so powerful and effective, and why his preaching was so effective and powerful. And we also had a brief look at Jesus' baptism, and I showed you the reasons. Four reasons why Jesus chose to be baptized. Um, we know that he was perfect, he was sinlessly perfect, he didn't need to be baptized in the same way that you and I need to be baptized, but he chose to be baptized, and we looked at the reasons why he chose to be baptized. It was a moment of decision for him, it was a moment of embracing his call, and the, the call that God had for his life and his ministry. Thirdly, it was a moment of him identifying with what John had been preaching. John had been preaching and there was a revival that began to happen and people were moving towards Jesus and, and towards the kingdom of God. And so Jesus identifies with the people and he too moves with them to say the kingdom is coming. And he announces that quite clearly. And then an amazing, amazing affirmation of the Father, the fourth thing, this is my son, for I am well pleased. Yeah. And I tried to encourage you last week that Jesus loves you before you've done anything. He loves you. That you are his dear son, you are his, his, his daughter, and he affirms you and loves you perfectly right now before you've done anything to serve him. He loves you perfectly. What a liberating place that is to live from that place. And then it was also the moment, fitly, that Jesus received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which empowered him for his call, and ultimately that call led him to the cross where he died for our sins. And then I encourage you just to remember that the opening verses of Mark are an introduction to the whole book of Mark, remember, that says in the, right at the beginning, this is the beginning of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And uh, that's inseparably bound up with uh, John the Baptizer, whose ministry opened the way and summoned Jesus into what God had called Jesus into. And so, just to refresh your minds and what we've been thinking about in the last three weeks. And now we're going to plunge in and have a look at this amazing story of um, this, baptism, this uh, time of Jesus in the desert and the battle that he goes through in the desert. And I hope it will encourage you because how many of you in your lives feel like sometimes you're in the desert, sometimes you're having a battle. Anyone felt like that before? Well, here's some wonderful things we can learn in terms of Jesus' story. So, verse 12 says, Immediately the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angel 
angels ministered to him. And so I, I say to you, one of, one of the things about Mark is the, is the immediacy of the writing, and he quickly gets on to his next subject. And here in this narrative, he says, immediately the Spirit, uh, some of the translations are more gentle, um, Luke is more gentle, uh, Matthew is more gentle, they say the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. Mark is much more assertive. He says it was the Spirit that drove Jesus into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil. But the point is, whatever language you use, there's this compulsion that Jesus has by the power of the Holy Spirit that he has to go into the wilderness place. And so he's led, he's drawn into the wilderness place and uh, comes after this glorious um, baptism that he's gone through the next thing that happens in his life is he has to endure temptation. Isn't that true? We have these mountain top experiences with God and we feel so close to Him and we feel like He is our closest friend and then immediately, boom, you feel like you're in the valley and there's a test for you. How many of you can identify with that? See, Jesus has identified with us in every way and so. He too goes through this, this battles with, with, with Satan in his, in his life and he has to overcome for himself so that he can fulfill the ministry that God has called him to. Now what's most striking about Mark's version is if you look at Matthew and you look at Luke, they elaborate a whole lot more on what happens in the desert. So for example, uh, it says in the other Gospels that the devil comes to Jesus and says, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. And you know, Jesus replies and he says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so there are, there's more detail than some of the other versions, but the point is that just as John emerged from the wilderness with a message of repentance, Jesus humbles himself to God's call and his mission for his life Submits to the Father's will for his life, and that happens in the desert place. So he doesn't try to avoid it, he doesn't try to sidestep it. There's a confrontation that comes with the devil, and he walks through that confrontation to fully realize God's call for his life. And so the first thing I just want to point you to is a very obvious thing. Number one, it's the Spirit that leads Jesus into the wilderness. It's the same Spirit that came upon him and blessed him at his baptism. That very same Spirit of God leads him now into the wilderness. And the point is for us is that there are times that we all feel that we are also in a desert place. Uh, if, it's, if it's our own stupidity that leads us into the desert place, the best thing to do is to repent and say sorry to the Lord so we can get out of the desert quickly. But sometimes, God himself leads us to the place where we have to hear his voice. And we desperately need so his will to be revealed to us. And that happens no power in the wilderness. And so, no I'll say this to you right at the outset, if you think about this this morning, that when God leads us into the wilderness, it's because he's trying to so get us to a place where we will listen to him. To where we can hear his voice. There are things that he wants to say. Where there's quietness with the solitude, where we can be alone with Him, and He really can speak to us. You see, that's why I've been trying for many, many years to help all of us see that we are first 
sons and daughters of the Most High God, that He loves us, that we are always will be His sons. Why, do, why is that so important to me? Simply because if you don't have that rooted deep in your heart, when you go into the wilderness, your reaction is, I am being punished. God does not love me. Why is this happening to me? No. The basis of our lives is we have a Father in, he in, in heaven who loves us with an indescribable, eternal love that is constant, always there. And when we go into wilderness time, it's simply because He's trying to teach us to hear His voice, to depend on Him in a different way. So when we speak about the wilderness, I want you to hear that. It's not that God doesn't love. It's not that God is removing His blessing. It's not that God is punishing you. No, God just wants to hear, get you to hear His voice, to quieten yourself in the solitude that you cry out to Him so He can speak to you. He has a brilliant promise. I love this scripture, Isaiah 43. When we planted the church 20 years ago, Isaiah was a great book for us. Many promises in Isaiah. Here, look at this promise, Isaiah 43, 19. Behold, you've heard it before. Behold. I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not see? Do you not perceive it? He has the brilliant promise. Where are they? Oh, is it not in there? Oh, there it is at the bottom. They are in the wilderness when that promise is made to them. Do you see that? Uh, behold, do you not see? I'm doing a new thing. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. God's promise to you, magnificent promise, even when you're in the wilderness, even when you feel like you're in the desert, He's making a way for you. There are rivers there. He's going to provide in the desert place for you and for me. Amen? That's the first thing I want you to see. Same Spirit that baptized Jesus, the same Spirit, the voice from heaven that said, you are my beloved Son. The same Spirit leads Jesus because He's got to do battle. Secondly, that's the crux. When we are in the desert place, you can be sure of this, temptation is going to come. <laughs> when you're in the desert place, temptation will come. You see, when we're alone, when we feel like we're alone, when we feel invulnerable, the devil comes and he whispers things in our ears. Have you ever experienced that in your life? Where the desert comes, uh, the devil comes and he whispers in your ear and he undermines and he says, did God really say are you absolutely sure? Those kind of questions. The devil loves to ask those kind of questions. And my point to you this morning is that these, these things are allowed in our lives under the gracious hand of God not to make us fail. They are allowed to help us strengthen our resolve, to help us tone our muscles, our will, our heart, so it gets stronger in that place. Are you with me? They're never there for, meant for your ruin. They're never there meant to trip you up. They are there for your good, and this is one of the greatest lessons that we can learn. I always think of sport because everyone can identify with sport. What happens when you play sport at a certain level? Say you play at your f uh, level of uh, your school first team. 
you want to test your skill at another level and then you get invited perhaps to the provincial side or club side and you test your skill at that level and then if your skill is sufficient at that level you get invited to a higher level and perhaps you play for your, your, your uh, a big club and if your skill level is tested and you are found that your level can you can perform at that level you are perhaps invited to play for your country there are different levels and every time there's a different level for us, there must be a testing of our resolve, our will. Are we going to trust God? Are we going to hear God's voice? Are we going to choose to hear the devil's voice? Are we going to choose to go God's way? Or are we going to choose to go our own way? These things happen in the wilderness place where we have to hear for ourselves, where there's no one else around. It's just you and God. It's your heart and His will. And you have to make up your mind. Yes? And all I want to say to you is when the tests come, we're to pass them so that we can emerge better equipped, stronger, more certain for the next fight that God will ask us to engage in. That's what Jesus went through. And you can be certain that you and I are going to go through the same tests. Second thing I'd like you to notice. Temptation comes in the desert place. The next thing I'd like you to notice is, is this little thing. It says he was there for 40 days. Now, I'm not certain uh, when I've um, studied this that it really means 40 days. Why do I say that? Because 40 days is used in the Bible many times over just to describe a long period of time. Uh, for example, it says of Moses that he went up on Mount Sinai to be with God for 40 days, Exodus 24. It says Elijah was also strengthened by the angels for a period of 40 days on Mount Herob, 1 Kings 19. So it might mean 40 days literally. It most likely means a considerable period of time. So for Moses and Elijah, it was also a time for them in the desert. It was crucial for what God had called Moses and Elijah to. And the same that they had to be inwardly, inwardly prepared for what it called, God had called them to do. And Moses, Elijah, John the Baptizer, we looked at last week, they were all men of the desert place. They were all men of the wilderness. And the same was true for Jesus. He was tempted in the desert place and prepared through that for what he was called to do for a considerable period of time. Whether it was 40 days or not doesn't matter. And Jesus, his determination to embrace this call for his life, to really live out what God had called him to do, leads to this confrontation with the devil. And it's the same for us. If you want to give your life wholly for God, and you want to serve him with all of your heart, my friend, there will come a confrontation with you, for you with the devil. Because the devil will say, has God really said this is what he has for your life. Do you really want to go through the pain so that you can get to the other side? Do you really want to do this? I can show you a much better way of getting to this point without having to go through all the stuff that you're going to have to deal with with God. That's the temptation that we, all of us are going to have to go through. And so thirdly, I would just like to have a look at well, how the Bible speaks about Satan. And this, I found this really interesting as I was researching it. See, the Bible speaks about Satan or the devil in different ways, in different parts of the Scripture. So, for example, in the Old Testament, the word Satan literally means 
enemy. It literally means adversary. And it's even used of humans. It's even used of other people. So, for example, in 1 Samuel 29 verse 4, the Philistines fear that David might turn out to be their Satan. That's the literal translation. The Philistines say, our adversary here is this guy called David. Or, in 2 Samuel 19, 22, David says he regards Abishai, one of his generals, as his Satan, his adversary, his enemy. Or Solomon said that God had given him such peace and prosperity in his kingdom that there was no Satan left to oppose him. The word is literally used like that, 1 Kings 5 verse 4. No Satan, no adversary left. So in very general terms in the, in the, in the Bible, the word Satan means adversary. It means enemy. It means someone who opposes. And it can be used of humans as well. But then secondly, there comes like it's a downward progression of how the word is used. Secondly, there becomes a, um, a downward step where it means someone who pleads against another person. It's like someone who's um, in a court of law is, is showing evidence against someone who is accused. And we know that's how it's used in Job. Remember the book of Job? His task, God says of, of Satan, your task is to see if there's anything in Job that needs to be challenged. Job 1.7. And in this sense, it's like the devil is searching for a case against Job, and he pleads and accuses Job in the presence of God. So that's another level of the word Satan or enemy or accuser. He becomes the accuser of men and women before God. And that's how exactly the word is used in Zechariah 3 verse 2. So in other words, the task of Satan is to say everything negative that could be said against another person. All right? Can you see where I'm going with this? Well, hopefully it will become clear in a short while. In a short while. Another, another title that the Bible uses for Satan is Diabolos, which literally means devil. And now it goes a further level down. It's no longer now just accuser. It is now slanderer. You get what I'm saying? Now the devil, the enemy of God, is called the slanderer, the one who not only accuses but speaks badly of, and it's a small step from being an accuser to being a slanderer who deliberately and maliciously slanders human beings in the presence of God. And that is the lower level now of what the Bible says the devil is. He is the slanderer. He is the accuser. He is the one who maliciously accuses God's children in the presence of God. Are you with me? And then finally, there's a final downward step in the Bible. You remember in the story of Israel, they were, they were um, exiled to Babylon. Do you remember that? By the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down. Remember Boney M? Well, that's true. They were by the rivers of Babylon, and they were exiled there for many, many years. And the Persians had a particular view of the world that the Jews began to assimilate into. The Persians said this, that the, all of life is a battle between light and dark. Have you heard that before? That's not our thought. That's the Persians. That's what they said. There's this eternal battle between light and dark, and you have to decide what side you are on. Are you on the side of light, or are you on the side of darkness? And the Bible also 
embraces this image of light and darkness. And the whole of the universe, all of life, is a battleground between these two powers. And people have to take their stand, and they have to decide where they're going to be in the cosmic battle. And so put into this language, the Bible then uses this language and says that everything, that God is light, and everything good, and everything perfect is found in Him. And God's supreme enemy, His adversary, inevitably is called Satan, who's the supreme enemy of God, and he is complete darkness. So you get it. So there are all these levels of the way the, the Bible speaks about Satan. And so when we get to the New Testament, what does the Bible say clearly? It says the devil is behind all disease and suffering. Yes? The devil. Luke 13, 16. It's Satan who seduces Judas to do what he does. He, the enemy of all that is good, the enemy that is complete darkness, he seduces the heart of Judas and it becomes dark. And out of that darkness, he chooses to portray, portray, portray Jesus. Luke 22, 3. What does 1 Peter 5 and James 4 encourage us to do? It says, Who is our enemy that we must resist, that we must fight with all of our might? The devil. What about um, Luke 10? I love this. The power of darkness, the power of the evil one, is being broken by the resurrected power of Christ. All that is dark, all that is evil, all that is broken is being trampled underfoot by the living Christ. That's the gospel. Ultimately, he is destined for destruction. Matthew 25, he will be thrown into the fire where he will eternally be. So my friends, for you and I, when we're in the desert place, when we're going through these things, let that be a light to you, knowing that in the end, good will overcome. Darkness will be banished. Light will eternally reign. That's the kingdom that we're going to, the kingdom that we're part of. And so why I'm saying all of this is because he has the battle. In all of this, this is the background to Jesus' battle of temptation in the desert. He had to decide how he was going to do what God had called him to do. And for you and I, it's exactly the same. When God calls us, we have to decide how we're going to do what God has called us to do. Jesus was conscious of this great task that he had to complete. And he was, com he was also conscious that there was a great power in him to do that task. He knew he was the Son. He knew he was Messiah. He knew of his complete love by the Father. He knew that was inside of him. And so God was saying in the wilderness, God was saying this to, to Jesus, my son, take my love to the world. Take it to men and women. Love them. And even if you have to die for them, you don't stop loving them. That, that's, that's what God the Father was saying. Conquer them with love. Even if that means you end up finishing your ministry on the cross, I will resurrect you from the dead. That's what I'm saying, my son. That's what God was saying. God the Father was saying in the wilderness. And at the same time, God the Father was saying in the wilderness, Satan was saying this. Use your power. Blast people. Obliterate them if you have to. Have them bow down to you and worship you. Use your power to do what God has called you to do. So, very basic. Am I going to do this, Jesus, with a reign of love? Or Satan saying, you can be the political messiah. You can be the dictator. You can get them to bow down to you anyway. 
Do it that way. So should Jesus be a Messiah of love in the way that God had intended for him? That was the test that he had to pass for himself in the desert, in the wilderness, alone with him and the Father doing business. My friend, if you've got a great call on your life, God's called you to do something great for his kingdom. The same test will be yours. Do I do this God's way? Or do I do it my own way? Do I do it the way of the Father? Or the way of the evil one? Do I choose God's ways? Do I choose Holy Spirit ways? Love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, forgiveness. Or do I choose the way of the enemy? Do I choose, my friends, I'm saying this as kindly as I can. I hate, I hate, I hate gossip. You know why I hate gossip? Because you can see right here, when you gossip, you behave like the devil. You are more like the devil than you are the Holy Spirit. When you slander someone, you are being the devil to that person. Don't do it. Choose the higher road. The higher road is grace, kindness, forgiveness. And Jesus says, even when people speak badly of you, speak well of them. How hard is that? That's the higher road of the Holy Spirit. My friends, I'm saying that because I love you, and I've had to learn that in my own life. You know how many times in leading a church, people have hurt me personally or have hurt my family, and I want to, everything in me wants to slander that person. And when I see them next... They smile like nothing's happened. How so great to see you. How are you? You know how hard that is? And it's the same for you. Choose the higher road. Choose the higher road of forgiveness, the Holy Spirit way, just as Jesus had to do in the desert. Fourth, I'm nearly finished. I found this interesting. It says the animals are his companions. Why is that there? Well, he has some thoughts maybe. It's the only time that in all of the Gospels, Mark is the only one who records this. And obviously there are the wild animals in the desert. Perhaps this is included to show us how grim this really was for Jesus to face this alone in the desert. He's got to confront the danger and loneliness of the desert place. Other people have suggested actually that it's pointing to something else, that perhaps the animals were friends to Christ in the desert. You know, the, the, the Jewish people dreamed of this golden age when Messiah would come and that the enmity between the, the natural world and humans would no longer exist. So if you read, in, for example, in Hosea 2, there's this kind of pro- prophecy in verse 18. I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and all the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, the war from land, and I will make you lie down in safety. There's the sense of peace will come even to the natural world. And that's what we're longing for, this reconciliation of the natural world where snakes will no longer bite you (laughs) and spiders will no longer poison you and all that stuff. Or what about uh, Isaiah 11? This amazing promise in verse 6, the wolf will lie down with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goats and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall grace their young and lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. How about that? Carnivores? (laughs) Lions becoming vegetarians, that can't be right, surely. Um, <laughs> the nursing child shall play on the whole, uh, over the whole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den, and they shall not be hurt, 
or destroying all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So there's this prophecy in the scripture of peace in the natural world. And so some people say that maybe this is pointing to that, that in the desert place here, the animals are friends of God, of Jesus. The perfection and paradise that is coming as the kingdom of Jesus is ushered in. And lastly, the Bible says the angels were helping him. The angels helped him in this place. Uh, the Bible is full of examples of angels ministering to people as God's messengers. For example, um, I was thinking of the story of Elisha and his servant when they were shut up in a place called Dotton, and the enemies were surrounding them, and there seemed to be no way that they could escape. And in 2 Kings 6.17, 6, it says, Elisha prays, and God opens his servant's eyes, this young man, and he sees that they are surrounded by a whole army of God with, with chariots and horses. And his eyes are open. And the point is, we are not fighting this battle alone. There are angels. There are God's army is, is with us. Amen? And so perhaps today you're facing something in your life that seems to be overwhelming to you. Perhaps you're facing a temptation in your life again, and you're afraid that you're going to fail. I want to encourage you this morning. I want to pray with you this morning that God would open your eyes, that you see that you're not alone. Liverpool, we are never, we will not walk alone, all that stuff, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you are not alone as son of God, as a daughter of God. His Spirit is with you. God is with you. There are angels surrounding you, cheering you on. There's a great host of heaven, those that have gone before us. Hebrews, they are cheering you on. Do not fail. You can do it. Stand. Let the Holy Spirit strengthen you from the inside out. God is with you. Can I encourage you this morning? God is with you, whatever you're facing. Why? He wants you to overcome that thing so you can live in a different level of glory in your life. One glory to another. God is changing us, says Paul, from one degree of glory to another. There's a greater level of glory for you. Will you go through the test? Will you go through the temptation to go to that different level of glory? So, to conclude... Let me just say this. Following Jesus is not easy. <laughs> yeah. Following Jesus is not easy. Uh, so, some things about Jesus, following Jesus, are absolutely free. They cost us nothing. We are freely accepted by God. It's His grace is lavished in our life. We are discipled by the Holy Spirit. We do nothing to deserve these things. We live in a world, however, where grace is neither applauded nor welcomed. And so many people find the idea of salvation that is free. They find it dis distasteful, uncomfortable, and they'd much rather try and save themselves. And that's what religion does. All religion is man trying to save himself. They try and save themselves without admitting the need of a Savior. I can do this myself. I don't need Jesus. I can do this myself. Why do I need a supernatural being? Well, I, I, I can do this myself. You see, the way that we overcome that kind of thinking in our lives and in the world it's by admitting that we need to be rescued, that we cannot rescue ourselves. And Jesus is the only one who's able to rescue us. And once we know that, then, you see, you have to know that. If you want to walk in the power of the Spirit, you have to know that you can't do it yourself. You still think you can do it yourself, you're not going to walk in the power of the Spirit. You're going to walk in your own power, in your own strength. That's why we need to learn to, so we can walk in the power of the Spirit. And so all worship, Fellowship, prayer, sitting under preaching, all breaking of breads, 
All of those things remind us that we desperately need Jesus every moment of our lives. That's why we do them. And so salvation is not about fixing us up. Receiving salvation means we're first made right with God. This brings us into His people, into His community, and then we can lovingly serve Him through Jesus by the power of the Spirit. So that's why I say this is free and easy in one level. On another level, it's not easy at all. Because what does it mean? It means daily you take up your cross. Daily you forgive. Daily you die. <laughs> daily you are resurrected with Christ. Daily you learn to hear the voice of His Spirit. Is that easy? No, that ain't easy at all. Being a Christian is not for sissies. I don't mean to insult anyone. That's true. Secondly, discipleship is more about God's doing will, doing God's will, than it is about feeling good. See, Mark doesn't detail all the temptations like the other Gospels do, and the reason is because he's not too interested in internal, internal workings of people's minds. What he's most concerned about is that these people will be obedient to who Jesus is, and they will become disciples of the living Christ. You see, we must become aware of that, because we can so often get, get wrapped up in our own personal spiritual states that we, can, we become obsessive about it, and we start to think that what we feel is much more important and is the most dominant thing. It's not. What the Bible says is the most important and dominant thing. And what we feel goes up and down. And we feel close and we don't. We feel like we're lo loving and then we don't feel like we're loving. We feel like we're doing well with our parenting and then we feel we're not doing well with our parenting. We feel like we love our wives well and then we don't love our wives. So it's got nothing to do with your feelings or my feelings. It has to do with what the Word of God says. And that becomes the mark of successful ministry and how we judge anything. So Mark is trying to point us to something much more objective than what makes us feel comfortable and what makes us feel loved. He points us to a commitment of following Christ and doing His will, whether it produces comfort in our lives or not, whether we are fulfilled or not, whether we feel good or not. And you see, this is what Jesus showed us. And I want to encourage you, this is what we, you and I have to embrace as his disciples. What did Jesus say? Not my will, Father, but your will. My final encouragement to you is, if there's a great call on your life, if there's a call in on, on your life, there will be a test. Pass the test in the wilderness. Pass the test in the desert place so you can go to another level of glory in your life and through your life. God can use you in a powerful, powerful way. Amen.